0: Just a few months ago, for only the third time in the history of the Senate, members of the world's greatest deliberative body served as the jury in the trial of a sitting president. Reporters covering this grave moment were surprised to see senators struggling to stay focused. Some stood or paced about. At least two of them flicked fidget spinners. Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee was reading a book. The title? Resistance at all costs. How Trump haters are breaking America. Abraham Lincoln once conjured the better angels of our nature to reunite a divided country. This week, they played hooky from America's political firmament once again. Soaring tributes followed the death of US Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but within hours, senators were issuing appeals for funds to fight the battle over her replacement. They couldn't agree on the words of a resolution to honour Ginsburg, even as clerks stood vigil over her casket on the steps of the Supreme Court. With 38 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, is the Senate up to the job? Our Economist forecast suggests there's a good chance November's election will end Republican control of the Senate. The Republican leadership plans to push through the appointment of a new Supreme Court Justice to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg before then. Democrats are threatening retaliation if they win the election. They want to reform the rules that put a disproportionate amount of power in the hands of the country's conservative minority. Is this just the usual partisan tantrum? Or should the Senate change? In this episode, we'll ask how this moment of political anxiety will affect the election, touch on the charged history of the filibuster, and find out just how representative the Senate really is. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the Washington correspondent. Charlotte, it's been quite a week. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing fine. Here in New York, there have been protests in Manhattan and Brooklyn to protest against the charges, or really the lack of charges, against the police who shot and killed Breonna Taylor in Louisville. So um, there are helicopters overhead at night, and I think that you're going to see several days of protests going forward.
0: John Fassman, how about you? You've been on the road reporting this week.
2: Yes, I'm in Atlanta this week. There were some small protests here as well last night. It sounded like a greater volume than usual of sirens. And I wouldn't be surprised if they continued here too. And tell our listeners what you've been reporting on in Atlanta. Uh, In Georgia, I've been reporting on barriers and hurdles to voting. And I'm on my way down to Florida after we record this podcast to spend time with the Trump campaign and with Florida Republicans who are actually out canvassing for votes. Well, I've enjoyed hearing both of you moonlighting on other Economist
0: podcasts this week, Charlotte on Money Talks and John on The Intelligence. Let's get stuck into this episode because we've got a lot to talk about. Even by Washington standards, it's been a dramatic week since Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death was announced and President Trump said he'd nominate a conservative judge to replace her immediately. James Astle is The Economist's Lexington columnist and the DC bureau chief. He's written a story on all this for our latest issue.
3: The Supreme Court has been roughly divided in recent years, but now conservatives, or let's say Republicans, forgive me, even though they are flagging in their ability to command a popular vote majority in the country, are getting a majority of judges on the court. They got that majority in 2016. Now with Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death and their ability to appoint a replacement because they have the Senate and they have the White House, they are in a position to command a strong and long-lasting majority of opinion on the Supreme Court. It would be an enormously significant moment at any time. We're now just a month and a half from a general election, which was already extraordinarily closely contested and fraught. And this is effectively poured gasoline all over that already explosive political scenario.
0: Yeah, and to your point about how long lasting this appointment could be, our friend and colleague Steve Maisie, like many others, thinks Amy Coney Barrett is the favourite to be President Trump's nominee. She's 48.
3: She could still be on the court in 2060, right? Yes, she could indeed. That's the kind of anomaly of uh, lifetime appointments. It was devised by the founding fathers at a time, of course, when there was no partisanship and also people weren't expected to live quite so long as they are today and certainly not to work nearly so long into their lives as they do today. It was devised to free the court from political influence. Now we have a court that has been substantially politicised, and we still have these lifetime appointments.
0: You and I both covered the appointment of Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, both of which were contentious for their own reasons. But those justices were replacing, you know, in one case, uh, Antonin Scalia, a very conservative judge, replaced with another conservative judge, Anthony Kennedy, also who was a Reagan appointee, but you know, ended up as being a bit of an ideological chameleon. In this case, as you say, we're seeing one of the most liberal justices on the court replaced by somebody who'd very likely be the most conservative. And all of this going on just five weeks before a presidential election. James, you've written in this week's Economist about the norms that have been overturned by Republicans in the Senate when it comes to judicial appointments. Why is the move by the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to appoint a new judge before the election any different to the sort of norm breaking we've seen before.
3: It's different because it's so important, because the prize of a Supreme Court judge is is held so dearly, not only to the parties themselves, but it must be said to their voters, especially Republican voters. Control of the Supreme Court has become ever more important on the Republican side of the aisle as they become increasingly nervous about their ability to win popular vote majority. So in other words, the thing that Democrats consider to be most uh, scandalous, if you like, about the Republicans lock on the Supreme Court is also the thing that makes the Supreme Court especially important to Republicans. However, within that, the nature of the Republican majority leader's bad faith is sort of so brazen that I I think it's an affront to what is it? I think still a general American sense of fair play. Americans, by and large, do believe that fair play is something that, that should still be discernible through the partisan war. And, and Mitch McConnell has shown utter bad faith in the way that he has, has, has run this process. Back in 2016, when uh, President Obama was nearing the end of his term, Justice Scalia died. Mitch McConnell, as the Republican majority leader in the Senate, said, No, 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 there's a historical precedent that we don't confirm justices in an election year. That was wrong because there is no such precedent, for sure. It has been increasingly rare for justices to be nominated and confirmed in election years, mostly because not many justices have sort of sprung a surprise on American politics by dying in office. However, that happened. This time around, when Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died much, much, much closer to the election, Senator McConnell claimed that actually the precedent that he described in 2016 didn't apply in this circumstance. Well, you know, he's right. There's nothing to stop Republicans' nominating and confirming an appointment for Justice Ginsburg. It's just plainly against the letter and the spirit of the president that they discovered in 2016. And I think that that has driven Democrats rather mad. It's rank hypocrisy. But again, there's nothing wrong with it constitutionally. And there's nothing really that the Democrats can do to stop McConnell.
0: So, Fazman, Donald Trump will announce his pick for the vacant court seat pretty soon, and we expect that nominee, whoever it is, to be confirmed pretty quickly. Democrats, understandably, are not too happy about this, and some have talked about exacting revenge
2: at some point in the future. How seriously do you take those threats? Well, the party seems unified in making them, right? Chuck Schumer said that nothing is off the table next year, and he said that while standing next to AOC someone whom I'm pretty sure he has no particular regard for, someone who is talked about as a possible primary opponent of his the next time he's up for re-election. So it shows the Democrats are serious at least about levying a credible threat. And I think there are three main things they could do. Number one is end the Senate filibuster. That is the requirement to effectively have 60 members of the Senate to do anything I suspect that's probably on its way out anyway, whatever Joe Biden says. Number two is to push for statehood for Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico. As things stand now, that would give them an extra four senators. I think there are some constitutional problems with D.C. statehood as much as I would like to see it as sort of a matter of justice as a D.C. native myself. And number three is expanding the size of the Supreme Court. So there are a lot of people on the left who would like to see the Democrats in response to what they see as two stolen seats to add two or three justices to the court. The Supreme Court has had nine justices, but that is not a constitutional requirement. It's just statutory. The numbers have gone up and down, but it's been at nine since Ulysses Grant's time. So those are the three sort of norm-breaking responses that Democrats
1: have threatened. It's interesting because some of this is, of course, an immediate reaction to the death of Justice Ginsburg and Donald Trump's imminent appointment of uh, successor. But also it is tied to sort of an arc of history in which Democrats see ways of working and modes of government that seem fundamentally undemocratic. And I was struck, um, Barack Obama in his eulogy for John Lewis earlier this year said that Americans could honor Lewis by fighting for equal representation, including people who live in Washington and in Puerto Rico, ending gerrymandering and eliminating the filibuster. So yes, these are threats that are being made now in direct response to the death of Justice Ginsburg and and Trump's subsequent appointment, but it does also stretch back into goals that the Democrats have been seeking for a long time, that they see reforms that are necessary.
0: My understanding of the math's Of all of this in the Senate, which is where the change would have to happen, is that if Democrats did take control of the chamber in November, it would probably be only with a narrow majority. And it seems quite unlikely that the sort of moderate senators from somewhat conservative places who they'd be reliant on for that majority would be up for making pretty big changes to the way things have operated by, say, increasing the size of the court or getting rid of the filibuster. I mean, I think that, as you said, John, you know, Chuck Schumer, Senate minority leader is, is making these threats. It's not clear to me that the Democratic Party, at least the Democratic Party in the Senate, wants to follow through on them anytime soon or would be able to. Yeah,
2: I think that's right. Joe Manchin, the conservative Democratic senator from West Virginia, has already said he opposes getting rid of the filibuster. So if Democrats retake the Senate, they'd need a more sizable majority than it looks like they're going to get right now. So if you scratch at it, I don't know how credible it really is.
1: I think there, though, you do see kind of the politics of this for Democrats being quite hard. You couldn't have Chuck Schumer get up there and say, you know, this is horrible, but there's nothing really we can do about it. So it doesn't matter who you vote for. We're all in this disaster together. So it makes sense that they're making this threat, and that they want to be seen as recognizing the real palpable outrage among those on the left, that these two kind of real principles of American government, one justice and the rule of law and the second democracy aren't really on display at the moment, you have A version of justice that allows a group of policemen to shoot a woman in her home and have those police not be charged. And you have a version of democracy that has a president who lost the popular vote and a Senate who represents the majority of Americans able to appoint three judges who serve for life. So, you know, I understand why Schumer and AOC and all of those on the left want to say to the American people, you know, we hear the outrage, and we can do something about it. Unfortunately, you know, as we all know, there's a big difference between kind of reacting and, and being seen to acknowledge a problem, and then being able to do anything about it.
0: Fasman, you're in Georgia at the moment, which of course has two Senate seats, unusually up for election in November. How does this battle over the court
2: affect the electoral politics of who's likely to get control of the Senate, do you think? I think that anyone who says they know that is trying to sell you something. I think it's unclear right now. I think the effects probably depend on how things play out. You know, I can see a situation in which Democrats overplay their hand, particularly if they start questioning Amy Coney Barrett based on her faith. I can see that turning off a lot of independent voters, a lot of Catholics that they would need in swing states. I can also see Republicans appearing too zealous. I think that would look unfair to most people. As Charlotte points out, You know, there is a sense that justice and democracy are not being served now. The Democrats have raised a ton of money off this, right? And I know that people are very excited to see Kamala Harris on the Senate Judiciary Committee questioning whoever is put forth. As a pure sort of gamesmanship matter, President Trump's decision is curious. I think a better way to motivate his base might be to say, that's fine, we won't choose a nominee until after November 3rd. Whoever wins the presidential election gets to pick the next justice, so vote for me. I mean, I think the problem with that is that he may not be terribly confident he'd win, but I think that's a better way to rally the base on the right than to just ram it through now. All right, well, thank you both. We've already raised the possibility that some Democrats might want to scrap the filibuster.
0: And in a moment, we'll look back to how the filibuster came to be in the first place. Before that, a reminder, if you're not an Economist subscriber, you're missing out. Signing up is simple. You'll get the best offer by heading to economist.com 2020 election pod. You'll get access to James Astle's Lexington column on African-American voters written from North Carolina. There's a beautiful obituary of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and our cover stories on the pandemic as we pass 1 million deaths worldwide. As ever, the charts in that are as eye-opening as the words. That link for a special rate is economist.com slash 2020 election pod. You'll find it in the notes for this episode on your
4: podcast app.
5: Right now, Caroline and Catherine are both at home, getting ready to go to bed. Because the girls are watching, my wife Heidi is watching with them. I wanted to take an opportunity, an opportunity that I don't usually have when I'm in D.C., to read them a couple of bedtime stories.
0: On the 24th of September, 2013, Ted Cruz missed tucking up his daughters to talk on the Senate floor for 21 hours straight.
5: Do Do you like green eggs and ham? I do not like them, Sam I am. I do not like green eggs and ham. The filibuster triggered admiration for the
0: Texas senator's superhuman stamina, worries about his work-life balance, and
5: another round of debate about the Senate's dysfunction. You will say the wrong thing if you talk too much. So be sensible and watch what you say. I will have to confess to my colleagues that is not an encouraging proverb for someone in the midst of a filibuster.
0: The word filibuster doesn't appear in the Constitution. The rules of debate were set down by Thomas Jefferson in a manual of parliamentary practice that forbade senators from speaking superfluously or tediously the tactic of dragging out a debate to prevent legislation from passing didn't emerge until the 1830s. In 1879, a group of Republicans filibustered to block an attempt by Southern Democrats to keep US troops from policing elections in the South. The Democrats relied on voter intimidation at the time. In 1917, President Woodrow Wilson secured a change in the rules so that a two-thirds majority could override a Senate filibuster, allowing him to bypass the anti-war lobby. This blocking majority was later reduced to 60, but the heyday of the filibuster was yet to come.
1: You think I'm late?
5: You all think I'm late? Well, I'm not late! In the
0: 1939 film, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, James Stewart plays an idealistic young senator from Montana who exhausts himself speaking against a corrupt public works bill. It established Stewart as a star, and the filibuster as a heroic stand for the little guy against the abuse of power.
4: Somebody will listen to me.
0: But in real life, the filibuster became notorious for its use by segregationist Democrats trying to block the Senate from outlawing lynching in the 1930s. The longest Senate speech of all time came in 1957. South Carolina's Strom Thurmond spent 24 hours holding up civil rights legislation. He prepared by sitting in a steam room to dehydrate himself and snacked on balls of malted milk. Fans of filibusters like to say that these holdups create durable majorities and settled law. They have also been used by progressives.
1: To this bill. You can call what I'm doing today whatever you want. You can call it a filibuster. You can call it a very long speech. I'm not here to set any great records.
0: Bernie Sanders emerged as a national figure on the left in 2010 by speaking against a plan to keep the Bush-era tax cuts. The deal he detested so much was brokered by Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden.
2: The American people believe Congress is broken. The American people believe the Senate is broken. And I believe the American people are right. In
0: 2013, it was the Democrats who first began to chip away at the filibuster. Majority leader Harry Reid engineered a rule change after becoming frustrated at attempts to delay the confirmation of President Obama's judicial appointments. The so-called nuclear option restricted use of the filibuster for confirming federal judges. Obviously, you can break the rules to change the rules. Mitch McConnell, then leading the Republican minority in the Senate, warned that Democrats would come to regret the move. But some of us have been around here long enough to know
5: the shoe is sometimes on the other foot.
0: After control of the Senate switched, Republicans scrapped the filibuster for Supreme Court nominations too. Last year, McConnell reduced the right to delay judicial or low-level executive appointments to just two hours. This tit-for-tat has raised the prospect of the complete abolition of the filibuster, not just for presidential nominees, but for legislation too.
5: Say, I like green eggs and ham. I do.
0: As with any good bedtime story, in this political fable, expectations are subverted and hubris sent head over heels. Whenever the Senate has tried to reduce the impact of the the filibuster, partisan obstruction seems only to have increased.
5: I do so like green eggs and ham. Thank you. Thank you, Sam I Am. Charlotte,
0: you already mentioned in passing Barack Obama's eulogy at the funeral of John Lewis, the civil rights icon, at which... Obama said that the filibuster is a Jim Crow relic. What do you make of that?
1: It's funny because I see President Obama's point, but also this Jim Crow relic has kind of had new life in recent years because in the 1950s, there it wasn't actually used that often by Congress. Barbara Sinclair at UCLA has done research showing that it was an average of about one filibuster per Congress in the 50s. That started to rise in this century, but I was really struck by some of the data that Barbara Sinclair had about the 2009-2010 Congress, which was, of course, when Barack Obama was president— it was used 137 times compared with just 52 filibusters in the in the 2007-2008 Congress when George Bush was president. So that really does help to give you both some background for why Barack Obama would see the filibuster as being so frustrating, and also just how popular it's become as a tool very recently.
0: Right. So, Fasman, Barack Obama's correct that the filibuster became notorious in the 1930s because segregationist senators kept using it to block civil rights, and you know, even things like laws to try and prevent lynching. But it's had much wider use than that.
2: Yeah, I think there's a qualitative difference between a filibuster that is rarely used, and only on extreme circumstances, and one that has become a sort of parliamentary maneuver to block a majority from passing legislation that it approves. Remember, a filibuster means that you need 60 votes for almost anything. So if a party has 57 seats in the Senate, which is really by modern standards, a sizable majority, they're still effectively hobbled. And I think that is what people are objecting to about the filibuster now, that it effectively empowers minoritarian rule. Now, the alternative, as Mitch McConnell points out, is A simple majority being required to pass things, and I can understand why in the context of the Senate, which is supposed to be the world's greatest deliberative body, that seems like something you might want to do. But I think of those two alternatives, being having a majority that can pass legislation and having a minority able to block legislation, you'd probably side with the latter as a matter of democracy and justice. The problem with the filibuster, it seems to me, as a check at the
0: moment, is twofold, really. I mean, the way that American politics is polarized between Republicans and Democrats means that there's so little ideological overlap between senators that your chances of getting cross-party deals, which used to happen all the time in the middle of the 20th century, are really, really low. It's very hard to build a bipartisan majority that gets you over that 60-vote threshold. But equally, if you look at the way Senate elections go and the way that the Senate overweights rural America because it gives two senators to Wyoming with a population of half a million and two senators to California with a population of 40 million – it means it's incredibly hard for either party in an election to win a majority of 60 votes, right? And so the upshot of that is that if you say the filibuster can be used freely, and as freely as it has been in recent years, that basically prevents you from getting any big legislation through the Senate. And I suppose there's a conservative argument for that. You know, maybe it's good in some sense that the Senate just prevents stuff from happening in D.C., but it does really make it almost impossible for any president, any party, to get you know, really big, meaningful legislative changes through Congress.
2: Maybe the solution is, instead of completely getting rid of it, a rule that restricts each party to two or four filibusters per Congress. I know that sounds facetious, but I think something like that, that allows the minority party to express its strong objections to something, but doesn't let them basically gum up the works of the entire senate that could work
1: i think this whole conversation kind of highlights how difficult it is to, to change these these rules that were crafted 100 of years ago when the government looked hugely different than it does today abolishing the filibuster is the easy part and that is really, really hard doing other things like admitting the District of Columbia or Puerto Rico, which would slightly help to reduce the Senate's bias towards white rural voters. That would uh, require majority votes in both houses of Congress. And there would probably be a constitutional challenge to admitting Washington. It's just extremely difficult to get some of these changes through.
4: The
0: best thing I discovered when reading up about the history of the filibuster this week was that in 1914, Robert La Follette of Wisconsin filibustered for 18 hours and kept himself going on a diet of milk and whipped raw eggs, which he ate. Uh, (laughs) Milk and whipped (laughs) raw eggs. Phasman, you're a big foodie. What would you have to keep you going
2: if you had to sustain a filibuster for 18 hours? Oh, God. Uh, Something protein related, probably almonds, beef, jerky and water. How about you, Charlotte?
1: Oh, just straight up peanut butter, obviously. I feel like that's the only credible answer.
0: What about some of those macaroni cheese balls that you used to eat when you were driving across the Midwest? (laughs) Those,
2: Those would be good. Almonds, beef, jerky and water is basically my road trip diet anyway.
0: Okay, thank you both. We'll be back in a bit to dig further into the numbers on how representative the Senate really is these days.
2: We've
0: spoken about the Economist election forecast on the podcast before. Right now, it still gives Joe Biden an 80% chance of winning the presidency in the Electoral College. This week, we launched our Senate forecast. If you listen to Wednesday's episode of our daily podcast, The Intelligence, you'll have heard how it was put together. One thing the model doesn't consider is the question of just how representative the Senate really is. That's been a topic of heated debate as Democrats cry foul over the prospect of a Supreme Court justice appointment. Our data guru, Elliot Morris, has been looking at the statistics for us.
4: So the American Senate today is likely at its most unrepresentative point since the founders created it. If you compare the populations in 1790, you'll see that Virginia, the largest state, had only nine times as many voting eligible citizens as Delaware, the smallest state. Today, California, the largest state, has 40 times as many people, roughly, as Wyoming. Yet, in the Senate, they have the same exact representation. Our second data point is that rural voters favor Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump by about 20 points, whereas urban voters, the type you would encounter in the cities in California, favor Joe Biden by about 30 So if you combine this bias toward rural voters with rural voters' inclination to vote for Republicans, then you also get a bias in the Senate toward Republicans. And you can measure that bias here with our third data point by considering a simple exercise. If you order all of the states by their margin for Hillary Clinton, by the largest margin, so California since D.C. has no Senate representation, to the least, So for Donald Trump's best state, and you take the median state, which would represent the the state that provides the 50th Senate seat for Democrats, their tiebreaker seat if they hold the presidency, that median state is about seven percentage points more Republican than the nation as a whole was in 2016. But the disparity becomes even clearer uh, once you consider how many votes the Republicans versus the Democrats would have to win to control a supermajority or 67 seats in the Senate. So if you perform this same exercise where you order states by their margin for Hillary Clinton and you take the 67th percentile state, the one that would give Democrats the supermajority, that state is 19 points more Republican than the national average. So we would think that Democrats would have to win nationally by a 19-point landslide. Sort of impossible for our polarized era to control a supermajority. But on the flip side, Republicans, if you reverse the ordering, would only need to win a state that's two points more Democratic, two points, to control the supermajority. And this difference between the 19-percentage-point threshold for Democrats and the 2-percentage-point threshold for Republicans is what gets reform advocates into such a dizzy about how unfair the Senate has become.
0: So, Fasman as Eliot ably demonstrated there, the Senate is really anti-majoritarian at the moment, and more so now than it has been, I think, at any time in its history, at least since senators became directly elected 100 years ago. Is that a problem? I mean, some of the founders might say, well, the whole point of the Senate is that it's meant to be a check on the enthusiasms of the popular will.
2: And anti-majoritarian is is good because it guarantees the rights of the minority. I think that's right to a certain extent. George Washington supposedly told Thomas Jefferson that the framers created the Senate to cool House legislation like a saucer cools tea. And James Madison thought the Senate was a necessary fence against the fickleness and passion of the House of Representatives, which was supposed to more closely represent the popular will. And it's often called the world's greatest deliberative body. The problem is the deliberation seems to have waned, and the Senate seems no less immune to political passions and partisanship than the House does. So in that sense, it was intended to be a more deliberative body, but that just isn't where America is now. It's subject to the same sort of partisanship and the same rigidity that the House of Representatives is. It's just less responsive to popular will. Also, the Senate with a filibuster, meaning that you have to have 60 votes in order to
0: get big stuff done. And when at a time when it's pretty much impossible for either party to get those 60 votes, doesn't really act as a cooling saucer, does it? I mean, it's not so much cooling the tea as just throwing it down the drain.
1: <laughs> the Supreme Court also is an interesting representation of that tension between America wanting both to represent the will of the people and be removed a bit from the big swings in popular sentiment. It's worth remembering, though, that it's not entirely the system of of justice that is present all over the world. And in Britain, I was reminded this week that Supreme Court justices are appointed not by politicians, but essentially by a committee, and they have a mandatory retirement age. They usually don't serve for longer than a decade, which is, of course, very, very different. John Roberts was appointed chief justice as a young man. He could serve for 40, maybe even 50 years, depending on how things go. So it's a very different system than that that you see in other big democracies.
0: Yes, I think the court outside America that has the longest judicial terms is Germany's Constitutional Court, where justices can serve 12 years. But even that is a long way short of the kind of tenure that Supreme Court justices can have. And there's a relationship between that long tenure and the sort of Senate dysfunction that we've been talking about. Because if the legislature can't create majorities to deal with culturally difficult issues like gay marriage or abortion, those then get punted into the judicial branch, and you end up having you know, nine unelected judges of the Supreme Court making these incredibly consequential decisions about American society.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. There is a way in which the sort of Senate and Supreme Court feed each other's dysfunction, right? It becomes very easy for legislators, rather than sitting down and doing the hard work of compromise, to just punt the question to the courts and inveigh against the other sides. And so you're quite right, the the sort of life tenures of Supreme Court justices are entirely out of line with the rest of the world. But there's also a sense in which America is sort of in a gerontocratic moment right now. I mean, the head of the Senate Judiciary Committee is Dianne Feinstein, who's 87 years old. And she may have lost a step or two. I wish I had a grand theory to offer about why this is right now, but it's quite striking.
1: Our producer, John Shields, pointed out that there are nine senators who are older than 75. So that's about 10% of the Senate being over 75 is a pretty remarkable statistic. And of course, you have Joe Biden and Donald Trump, each of whom, if elected, would be the oldest president in history.
0: So ever since 2016, when James Comey, then head of the FBI, came out with his October surprise. People have been wondering whether there might be another October surprise this year. We're still in September, but does the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg count as an October surprise?
1: It definitely counts as a surprise. I think the mistake here is is using the singular the October surprise. I mean, we're going to have all kinds of other things happen between now and election day. And I think... You know, in this week alone, we had Justice Ginsburg's death and the grand jury decision regarding Breonna Taylor. There were some policemen who were shot in Louisville in protests. I mean, it's just a very combustible situation.
2: I think there are a couple of big surprises in waiting. You remember that Bill Barr assigned John Durham, who is a career federal prosecutor, the task of looking into the Russia probe. I still would not be surprised to see some sort of spurious, tendentious charges coming out of that. We also had the president of the United States yesterday refuse to commit to a peaceful transfer of power and suggest as a solution to people's fears of a rough transfer, just getting rid of the ballots and not having anyone vote. So I think there's still a lot of time and a lot of possible surprises waiting for us. Well, we'll have five episodes left after
0: this one before the election. So I'm sure we will have plenty to talk about. Before I let you go, I have a quiz. The first United States senator to come to the attention of The Economist was John Sherman. The Ohio Republican spent Biden-esque 42 years in public service, mostly working on finance. He was instrumental in making paper money legal tender after the Civil War. In 1876, we reported on his bill proposing a uniform English and American coinage. The idea came to nothing, but an act bearing Senator Sherman's name was passed in 1890. What did it outlaw?
1: It's an antitrust act.
2: That's what I thought it was, too.
0: You're just saying that, John. Charlotte got there first. That's a point. It did outlaw monopolies, (laughs) so that's a point to Charlotte, who got there first. How much is the rent on boardwalk with one hotel?
2: (laughs) I don't know. It's $225?
1: That's, um, I don't know. I actually had played Monopoly during this time. Um... But it usually involves a lot of cheating on behalf- on this- by my six-year-old. I don't know,
0: $300. It's 2000 bucks. so Charlotte, your six-year-old really has been cheating. <laughs> Parker Brothers launched Monopoly in 1936. It emerged later that the original idea for the board game came from a young feminist and social reformer named Lizzie McGee. She patented the Landlords game more than 30 years earlier, hoping to spread support for a tax on land value. McGee's self-published game found fans among college students and Quakers. Parker Brothers bought her out for $500 flat,
2: no royalties. Can we all just agree that Monopoly is the worst board game aside from Risk? Thank you, John.
0: Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thanks, John. That's all from us. If you like the podcast, please tell everyone and leave us a rating and a review. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at radioeconomist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more checks and balance next week.